This is Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show, and Ella's Leash Production. Heard as a podcast around the world, but heard first on radio stations 100.7 WHUD-FM and Real Country 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Shine On, bringing you healers and dreamers and people who want to make life richer. It's your time to shine on. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for tuning in to Shine On Today. I found a great woman, therapist Nancy L. Johnston, and a fabulous book that she's written called Disentangle, When You've Lost Yourself in Someone Else. Nancy works in private practice in Lexington, Virginia. She has over 42 years of clinical experience, and also she has a personal history growing up with alcoholism in her family. Having an alcoholic in the home or even having someone off balance in the home sets off a chain of events and also a chain of roles that people in the home take on and then protect for reasons I will understand better when I get through this entire book, Disentangle, When You've Lost Yourself in Someone Else. So think about your relationships. Are they relationships or are they entanglements? With whom do you get entangled? What entangles you with this other person? What parts of you get entangled? How do you feel and act when you are entangled? And it's a completely different feeling, entanglement than relationship. Detaching, detaching even momentarily from any relationship that doesn't feel right is one of the first steps to take to peace and health. Yes, all of our lives are interwoven with other people's lives and things, but entangled? Mm, That's something different. Nancy, it feels like you've given us a big piece of your heart with this book. Casey, yes, I have. This work goes back about, for me, about 25 years Uh, in the mid-1990s for both personal and professional reasons, I started noticing my own tendency to lose myself in important people in my life. At that time, I was learning a lot about it um, through the alcoholic family systems, and those of us living with an active addiction in our home can easily keep our focus out there on the other person, and in doing that, we get way out of balance with them and with ourselves. So it started looking and working with people in uh, living with addiction, and I quickly also realized, Casey, how broad it can go. We can lose ourselves in our parenting, we can lose ourselves in our work or in our relationships with people we work with, and certainly any caregiving situations, for example, with aging parents. Keeping this balance of care of self and others is what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm going to tell you this, and I know you're going to get me. I thought you were supposed to lose yourself in other people. It was a really long time. I think I was in my 30s before I realized, oh, I'm not supposed to be all this wrapped up in everything that my parents do or my siblings do. Or, you know, I thought yes. I was. that was what a good Catholic Italian girl did was to completely right. be at the mercy. And, and I loved it. You know what I mean? I thought that was living. 
Right. And so I'm, I will comment on that, but I will ask this because it will help the listeners. The key to some of this work is waking up, us mm-hmm. starting to realize, oh, this isn't working for me. And that's how I work with people and with the book. Any, any comments about what helped you to start seeing it a different way? I was desperately unhappy. I mean, I yeah. loved being of service. I thought that is what life was. I thought that was what love was, to be the one who worried about everything, who took care of everything, who sent all the birthday cards, who made all the phone calls. I really thought that was love. But yeah. I would come home from events desperately lonely and sad. Exactly. And so, Casey, that was beautifully described. Um, you know, I think that each of us have to do our own waking up. The book in my work is not about if you had if I if you and I had met I would not have been trying to wake you up. I would have been helping you look at your situation because I think each of us have to find in ourselves what's wrong and how we want to make those shifts and changes. And I understand, you know, what you're describing. I talk about our tendencies to do all of those things you were talking about as having a number of different possible origins. Mm-hmm. Some of them are our very nature, Casey. We may well be people who love to give and caretake, and, and, and that is, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem becomes, I always put it on a continuum, when we carry it from the okay end of the continuum to the going too far. And you right. just gave shared, you know, a going too far on the continuum of those behaviors that, again, I'm repeating, because sometimes all of this gets um, tangled up um, with, oh, well, I'm not supposed to help or, you know, do right. things for other people. It's yeah. not that. It's right. just go too far. Just yeah. going too far with a, with a good heart and good intentions. It's so funny how it changes after a generation. My niece said to me one day, when someone in the family was having a hard time, she said, well, should I go and visit? You know, I'd like to, but I don't think it's my job to take care of him. And I was right? like, girlfriend, you know, you know, you know, at like 20 years old, what I was nowhere near learning, you know, for another decade or more. It's not her job to take care of someone. That's like, wow. I, I, I have found that. I'm smiling big. I found that in my personal, ex- in my personal experience um, with my 32-year-old daughter. And I certainly have found it in my counseling experience. I've worked a lot right. with even teenagers and college-age students. And I, and that takes us to another small point I want to make. We were raised in different ways is what it boils down to. I, I commented on our nature maybe, but our nurturing affects sort of what we think and how it's supposed to be as well. And my work is very non-judgmental. It's not to criticize however we were raised. It is, though, for us at a certain point to notice if the things we learned are helping us in, in our own balanced life right now. And I would suggest, Casey, that probably these younger people, these great girlfriends who got it early, have probably had different messages given to them as, as they were uh, nurtured. Right, exactly. Different messages were given to them. So what yes. makes a person, when you live with with an alcoholic, uh, well, I'll let you explain it. What happens sometimes when you live with an alcoholic? The family and and often, you know, the significant other has can go a couple of ways. But one is wanting to help the alcoholic stop their drinking, and so that can spin into 
anything from controlling behaviors to trying to sort of sneak around and have a sense of what's going on or um, and and it can also spin into arguments because the person who may be having trouble not drinking, which is its own challenge, um, there is not being responsive to the person who is so actively trying to, you know, fix them. And so there's just a lot of tension and conflict, pull and tug, tug of war, that can easily unfold if uh, each person basically doesn't work their own program. How about I put it that way? Yeah, work their own program, tend to their own side of the street. You know, that's what we need to do. So ever in the history of humankind, has one person ever fixed another? (laughs) Well, I'm not the expert on that, but it's not something I sell. How about that, Casey? Right, right. It's it's highly (laughs) unlikely that you're ever going to fix anybody and that, you know, eventually they may make some changes on their own, but boy, we can be so led to believe that if we only come up with the right set of circumstances, right. things will be so, okay. Yeah, so let me let me give the listeners um, a, a comment, a helpful comment on that, and it fits what we just said about staying on your side of the road. What I use in um, my office and in the book is what I call the line down the page, and it's where I end and the other person begins. It's just this in this I just draw a vertical line you know from ceiling to floor it is not a wall and so if I want to fix someone and I'm having trouble with it what I say is I can go to that line and say maybe once maybe twice but no more often and say uh, here's a meeting schedule and I found it and I'm going to leave it here on this line between us then our assignment is to leave it alone it's to step away it's to go back to whatever we were supposed to be doing, and it's theirs to either come and pick it up and or then to do with it what they would. Our entanglements come. If I keep looking back to see if they picked it up, if I see they picked it up, then I stand on the line peering over on their side trying to figure out what they're going to do about it, and I could run on and on about that. Oh, sure. Right. I got it. All right. Yes, and that's our job, and that's our job to take care of ourselves by not crossing over into the line, sitting on the person's head and saying, we must go to this meeting tonight. Um, you, exactly. you have in the back of the book something that is just so fabulous. It's a chart of roles uh, in an alcoholic family, the system dynamics of the alcoholic family. There's the dependent, the enabler, the hero, yeah. the scapegoat, the lost child, and the mascot. Holy smokes, Nancy. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah, that, that's the work of Sharon Wegscheider Cruz mm-hmm. that's been with us really since um, alcoholic. We did so much in the 80s and 90s to get uh, family treatment. But yes, Casey, go ahead about how it is exciting, isn't it? It's so exciting to see the words, the landscape painted so clearly. In And, and people who have lived with addicts of any kind know there's yes. the yes. dependent, there's the one, the enabler that enables. Tell us now about the hero and the scapegoat. Right. Um, the the hero is often the uh, child within the family system who really wants to be good, make the family proud of them. Mm, let me step back. All of these roles 
uh, believe it or not, to keep the equilibrium within a family system. Even though it's chaotic and crazy, let's just do broaden it to addiction. Let's say the addiction has the environment just chaotic and crazy. Everyone, without knowing, takes on these roles to keep the balance of things there. So the hero decides that it's really good to make everybody proud. Often they are the star student, the star athlete, the one who actually may be taking care of the younger children. They may be actually acting in parental roles. The scapegoat is the uh, child within the family system that shows the, the tension and chaos through acting out behaviors. And they may be the ones who have trouble getting their schoolwork done or even following rules that are given to them. And the family system says, if you, if that person would only behave, we'd all be fine. So that's how the scapegoat world mm-hmm. comes to that. Right. Um, I'll quickly comment on lost child is the one who is sort of invisible, maybe spends time in their room, time alone. And the mascot is the one who says, I'm going to bring some levity and entertainment here in order to cope. Right. Wow. Wow. Now, you may find you might not find all of these people uh, in your house, but and you might find one person wearing more than one hat, I would think, at one time or yes. two. We do. Yeah. I um I, I just have one brother and I when I look back I absorb two of the roles and he absorbs the other two roles. Right, right. So I yeah. I'm gonna guess you were enabler and hero and he was scapegoat and lost child. <laughs> yes. How'd I yes. do right, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, Casey. No, I, I, got, I got it. I got it. I have a funny story on that. I, I've gotten once we catch on, we see it and I swear I, I remember I was working in a college um, several, you know, a couple of decades ago, and I think the students thought that I was clairvoyant or something. Mm-hmm. It was like, I bet you're the firstborn, and they're like, oh, how did you know that, you know? <laughs> right. And once we see it, we see it. Right. We're talking to Nancy L. Johnston. The book is Disentangle, When You've Lost Yourself in Someone Else. Explain to me why that even in a household, when the family dynamic is is unhealthy and warped and um, and wackadoo, somehow <laughs> all we all agree in the house that we're going to keep that intact. How does that happen? I think that, um, you know, again, family systems theorists have looked at this a great deal over, you know, decades. And we are anxious about any change. We are very fearful. Um, anxiety can be, you know, related to fear. We are very fearful that if I say, and, and we may have to ultimately set a boundary, there's there's a section in the book on setting boundaries, that if I set this boundary, that a person will not get the help they need, but they will leave me instead. And that gets into our deeper psychological issues of what we are afraid of being alone, of not being loved, of messing up their whole family. So we just tough it out mm. so that we don't, as I was writing on an article yesterday, rock the boat. Yeah, so we don't rock the boat. Wow. Casey, yeah. I hear you, though. It doesn't, It from the outside, it is really hard to see and understand why anyone would let it go on. That's why this material is so important. It honors and appreciates the difficulty of looking at ourselves and seeing what 
really is keeping us where we are and what might free us to say and do something that's in our greater interest. All right. Uh, Speak to the people right now who may be enmeshed in uh, an unhealthy relationship. What's the first thing they can do today to feel better? I'm going to go back to earlier in our interview. They can step away, and that may be, you know, for five minutes on their porch or, you know, take, take a little walk, go in their room, and just sit and let silence settle in. Turn off everything. Quiet your environment, even for a little bit of time, and just tune into your own breath and your own living self here now in these moments and be glad to visit them, meaning yourself, and start tuning in to do I need to rest? Do I need to eat? Do I need to exercise? Do I need to call a friend? Or do I just love being in a little quiet space for me? And that's, that's a good starting spot. Great advice from Nancy L. Johnston. The book is called Disentangle When You've Lost Yourself in Someone Else. We're going to have her back for sure. So much to talk about there. Hey, did you try the Qigong on uh, Casey.co? Remember months ago, we promised each other we would try Qigong, and I found a really simple video, seven minutes long. I put it on the website. Heidi wrote in. She tried it. She loved it. Thank you, Heidi. I love it, too. I, I want the discipline in my life to do something like that every day. I would like many other disciplines in my life, too, especially those disciplines that involve carbs. All right. Here's a great book. Book lovers, librarians, oh my goodness. You must, must, must read this book. It's called The Lions of Fifth Avenue, and the author is the uh, New York Times bestseller, Fiona Davis. She wrote The Dollhouse, The Address, The Chelsea Girls, and now The Lions of Fifth Avenue. It says here it's 1913, and on the surface, Laura Lyons couldn't ask for more out of life. Her husband is the superintendent of the New York Public Library, allowing their family to live in an apartment within the grand building, and they're blessed with two children. But headstrong, passionate Laura wants more. And when she takes a leap of faith and applies to the Columbia Journalism School, ah, the same school the author went to, her world is cracked wide open. Hey, New York City girl, Fiona Davis, you are talking to Westchester on the Hudson Valley. Are you familiar? Oh, it's wonderful. Hudson Valley's great. And everybody from New York is flocking there, so. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. My neighbor's selling her house and moving to Florida, and we've had this steady stream of people from Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn, <laughs> Manhattan. <laughs> they all want to live next door to me. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's it. great. You know, maybe we can't all get to the beach this summer, but if we could, this is the book we'd be reading on the beach. Now, there's an apartment in the library. Is that true? That is true. As I was researching, I learned that when the library was built in 1911, they included a seven-room apartment deep inside the library for the superintendent and his family to live in. And so that was my inspiration. Do people still live in there today? They do not. The, the superintendent 
tenant. He lived there for 30 years. His daughter was born in the library. His kids would play baseball in the reading room using books as bases until they got caught. There were a lot of great stories about it, but they were there for 30 years, and then it became storage and um, offices. And I was able to go in and, and take a look at the space and just get a sense of what it was like, and it's, it's still there. It's not an apartment, but it's still there. Oh, man, this is like the coolest New York <laughs> tidbit, isn't it? I mean, everyone loves the library. Everyone loves it. It's gorgeous. And now you write this novel inside the library, deep inside the library. But what I found interesting is the woman in the story went to the same journalism school as you. Right. So the, the story has two timelines. And in 1913, it's from the point of view of the wife of the superintendent, whose name is Laura Lyons. And she's living in the apartment in the library with her husband and her kids. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, all of these books. But she feels stifled and she wants something more out of life. So she does. She applies to Columbia Journalism School, which at that point was only open uh, one year. And she gets in. It was co-ed. And suddenly her world is blown wide open. Wow. When you got into journalism school, was your world blown wide open as well? Oh, no question. I mean, you know, it taught me how to shape a story, how to research, how to interview people, and all of those things that even though it was for nonfiction, for articles, applies very much to writing historical fiction because there's so much research you have to do. Right, and that's what this is, historical fiction. And we're going to hear a lot of these New York stories and, and, and library stories in there. So you say two timelines. One is 1913 and the other? The other is 1993, and that's from the point of view of Sadie, who is a curator at a rare book collection in the library called the Berg Collection, and that actually exists as well. And she's putting on a big exhibit, and one of her rare books goes missing. And she's drawn into a series of book thefts that occurred 80 years ago, as well as a tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I like to say that the book's really about the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. Fiona Davis, you've written the greatest book ever. You know, but you know, people who love books love historical fiction and love the library aspect of it. This is like huge, huge. It was, it was so much fun to work on, and, and librarians paid. You know, their the book is dedicated to librarians, and and they helped so much. As I wrote the book, I wrote it actually in a room in the library called the Allen Room, which is for authors with book contracts. And so I was able to work on this book about the library in the, in library, the library, which was just even even more fun. There is a room in the library for people with book contracts to write. Yeah, and, and you apply to get in, and if you do get in, then if you need a book, you can request it, and it shows up on your bookshelf. You don't have to kind of go and, and look for it. And so I was reading books on the construction of the library or on typhoid. And on top of that, the librarians were so helpful, where at one point in an early draft of the book, there was a dead body. And I emailed one of my librarians, and I said, look, if you had to hide a dead body in a library, where would you put it? And she wrote back right away with a location. She said, put it in the basement. Here you go. She she put him in the basement? Yeah, yeah. She said she'd never gotten that question before. Um, And we're probably both under surveillance at this point. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the thing about uh, librarians. They truly are unflappable. They've heard so so many questions. Yes, and so that's why my character Sadie in the 1990s um, section had been a, a reference librarian, and so she's, she's known for being able to answer any question, like when did the Statue of Liberty turn green? She can figure that out. Wow. She's, a, she's just amazing at what she does. Okay, so, so the 1993 timeline and the 1913 timeline have to enter, intersect in, in a fantastic way, I'm sure. 
Yeah, you know, I love books with an element of mystery and great plot twists. And so there's kind of a, you're, you're trying to figure out who the book thief is mm-hmm. throughout both sections and going back and forth. And then they do eventually align um, with hopefully a really powerful emotional payoff. Wonderful. Have you been out on book tour? Well, you can't go out on book tour. <laughs> no, but I have to say that the, the publishing world has pivoted so quickly and I'm doing amazing virtual book tours. I just did a, a virtual event with the New York Public Library last night where there were hundreds hundreds of people from all over the country listening in and so it's an amazing opportunity to reach a lot of readers and um, you know the one thing I miss is in the signing line being able to really connect one-on-one with readers because it's right. so powerful and so inspiring but you know we will get back to that and in the meantime um, there's there's a lot to see if you love reading Google your your favorite author go on their book page and find out where they're talking and you can zoom in probably to one of their events it's, it's so oh, much fun that's so great and that's great for all of us to know instead of feeling far away from the authors we love we can actually get closer I just know that there's some librarians who really want to hug you. And right back at them. <laughs> right, and right back at them. I mean, for book lovers, like I have a friend whose uh, license plate is book lover, you know, condensed. Oh. And, and my sister made her Christmas tree out of books. You've written the perfect book for book lovers, a book about books. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's about our love of libraries and books, and and I'm just so excited to have it out in the world. Fiona Davis is going to tell us the title again? Yep, it's called The Lions of Fifth Avenue. And when you mean the lions, you don't mean the lions outside the library, or you mean the lions inside the library? I mean both, right? Yeah, yeah. so there's the lions outside that are named Patience and Fortitude um, after Depression-era virtues, and and, and they're out there today. They they wear masks now, which is, they're four feet wide masks that are on both of them, which is great. And um, But it also refers to the family inside, which is Lions, L-Y-O-N-S. And it's about the Lions of Fifth Avenue, both in and out. Fiona Davis, fionadavis.net. I'm Casey. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to Shine On. Check out casey.co or gatheringlove.org. Our thought for the day is from Dr. Seuss, who said, the more you read, the more things you will know. The more you learn, the more places you'll go. Go. Have a great day. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show for your entertainment only. Heard Sunday mornings on 100.7 WHUD and on Real Country's 920, 1260, and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Subscribe to Shine On on iTunes and SoundCloud and catch a show anytime at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Shine On.